We are Community Radio, Kilkenny City, 88.7 FM. Kilkenny Today on Community Radio, Kilkenny City, 88.7 FM. Yes, welcome again to another Kilkenny Today on Community Radio, Kilkenny City, 88.7 FM and uh, with me, Anne Nolan. And if you want to get in contact with the show today and have your say, please do so on the phones on 56 and the text line 86 and we are streaming live around the world on www.communityradiokilkennycity.ie. Um, another packed show, as I always have for you on Kilkenny today. Um, in a few moments, I'm going to air an interview that I did earlier on today, where I spoke to Paddy McGagan, who is the communications officer with Epilepsy Ireland and it's about a training for success course that is being held in Sligo IT and it's a course for people who are sufferers of epilepsy and to help them uh, to succeed in life and in college life especially. And then later on in the show, I will be speaking to Owen McKenney, who is the Head of Communications and Advocacy at Alcohol Action Ireland. And that is all in relation to the problem of alcohol misuse in Ireland. And there will be lots of information available after the interview, which I will uh, read out for you. Um, but now, I'm, like I said, I'm going to uh, air an interview where I spoke to Paddy McEagan from Epilepsy. Epilepsy Ireland. Epilepsy Mythbuster urges people with epilepsy to consider joining Epilepsy Ireland's training for success. On the phone now to tell us all about this is Paddy McGagan and he is the Epilepsy Ireland Communications Officer. So welcome to Community Radio Kilkenny City, Paddy. Hi Anne, uh, thanks Mayne for having us. Thanks for uh, taking the call today. So Paddy, first of all, tell us a little bit about this um, training for success when it comes to epilepsy. Tell us what it's all about. Yeah, so um, training for success is, is one of the jewels of our service really. Um, it's it's a course for people with epilepsy based on IT Sligo. Um, it's, it's aimed at people with epilepsy whose condition may have affected their... Um, their social or educational development. Uh, and if you can imagine, um, for example, if you have uncontrolled epilepsy during your leaving cert year, that can obviously lead to problems further down the line as well uh, in terms of where a person wants to go and what they want to achieve in their life. And this can lead to that person, you know, being isolated, um, not getting into college or not getting into the workforce. Now, what Training for Success does is bring people with epilepsy together in IT Sligo and give them the chance to learn those skills that they missed out of during, during say, their Leaving Cert year or further afield. Um, Paddy, you mentioned their Leaving Cert and the Leaving Cert results are just about to come out and everyone is going to be anxious. Just mm. out of curiosity, does the likes of stress from Leaving Cert or Junior Cert or everyday stresses, does that alleviate people's anxiety which will then make epilepsy come on if they are suffering from epilepsy in the first place? 
It, uh, yeah, it, it can be. Um, it can be a seizure trigger for many people, and it's quite a common seizure trigger. Um, you mentioned there, Debbie. Um, you know, the epilepsy mythbuster in, in your um, in your intro. Uh, for example, she cites um, that for her, her epilepsy during school. You know, she got she got teased about it, um, and that it was a very difficult time for. Her. That led to stress and anxiety um, about the, you know the difficulties she was having in school. Which in turn led to more seizures. Which you know, it's, 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 it was an endless cycle for her, unfortunately. Um, but then she discovered training for success, and like having met Debbie at, at, at the beginning of the year to having known her now, um, it's, it's two different people. Like, and training for success has, has given her that confidence and given her the ability, and, and you know, given her the chance to learn things that she missed out of during school um, to go on to hopefully do much, much bigger and better things. Um, like, she is now, Debbie is, is now, is like, is, is a champion in terms of epilepsy awareness. Um, she took part in our International Epilepsy Day campaign. And the the person who came to us at the beginning of the year to do our training for success course definitely wouldn't have done that. So it just shows how much her confidence has grown, um, her ownership of her. Um, and she points to training for success as like a real turning turning point in her life, which is which is a wonder, wonderful endorsement of the course. And what exactly do the participants learn on this course? There's a number of modules. Um, like there's communication modules. There's um, there's math modules. There's uh, um, there's work experience as part of it. Word processing. Loads of things, really. But what is the key part of it is that they are doing this course with other people with epilepsy who are in a similar condition, they're in a similar situation with them. Um, like, you're in a room with people learning the same thing, but they know exactly what you are going through and what you have experienced through your life. And, like, the bonds that have been formed through Training for Success seem to have, I'm speaking from, you know, from... from from experience here, uh, having met previous students, they seem to just last forever. Um, students who have completed the course are still in touch with each other, still in touch with the course course managers. And like I think that's the key part of it, that you will be learning these things alongside people who actually understand the condition and what you're going through. And how long does it take to, to do the course? It's a year, um, September to September. Um, and yeah, so it's just one year full time, um, and it's been going since uh, 1998. And through that period, 85% of the graduates who have actually come through the course have gone on to, you know, for further further education or entered the workforce. So it's a huge endorsement of the course. It's just that we want people to get on the course and you know have that opportunity. Um, because our course manager actually really made a made a very very um, you know interesting analogy. She she like she likened lockdown um, as not a new experience for some people with epilepsy, uh, owing to their condition that they had no work to go to, they had no school to go to, um, you know that they were they were very much socially isolated. Now we've all had that experience now, so we have a bit of a foresight as to what that means. But that wasn't new to the people with epilepsy that we support, uh, and that's why we want to, you know people in Kilkenny who may have epilepsy, who may be in that situation continually, 
to please consider joining Epilepsy Ireland Training for Success. It makes a real turning point for, for your for your life. And you mentioned there as well, you said about the lockdown and with everything that's going on at the moment with COVID-19 and the restrictions, does that acerbate a person who has epilepsy? Does it make it worse for them? Yeah, well, it, it, it's, you know, it's, it's been, it's been uh, full time um, over the last couple of months. And yeah, I'm, I'm sure there has been people with epilepsy who have felt well, I felt under particular stress um, over the last period, and it may have potentially led to seizures for them. Um, I suppose, in a general sense, um, COVID, like it's 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 not known. There's no known evidence that it has any more severe impacts on a person with epilepsy, uh, other than the fact that that stress leads to seizures, and it may bring on more seizures. And Paddy, what causes epilepsy in a person? Is it something that they are born with or is it something that happens throughout their life that causes epilepsy or is it a bit of both? It's, it's a bit of both. Um, and I suppose, you know, important more so than the causes is sort of understanding it. Um, like for medical terminology, really, it's, it's termed as... Uh, you know the tendency to have repeated seizures in the brain, but I actually like uh, I like the the analogy that that if you can imagine now your listeners a power cut, um, so before a power cut, uh, the lights flicker slightly, uh, the power suddenly goes off. After a few minutes, everything will you know come back on, uh, but things weren't were, were as they were before. Um, your microwave might be beeping, your fridge might be a wee bit louder. In short, it takes things a little while to get back to normal. Um, so if you could put that in, in the context of the brain, that is what is happening um, in the brain during a seizure for a person with epilepsy. And there's two types of seizures, isn't there? There is um, a mild and then there's a severe one. Are the there's, treatments the same? There's there's actually there, there's anything up to 50 types of seizures that we know of. You're, you're referencing the two more. Uh, in terms of treatments, the majority of people will will uh, gain control over the condition through through medication um, uh, but it's important to remember that basically every every person with epilepsy is, is a very individual condition what works for X won't necessarily work for Y so that's where it can be a, you know it can be a very difficult condition to manage uh, as people try and find the right combination of medication to suit their condition Um like so, that can also be a very stressful journey too for people with epilepsy. Um, particularly, sort of going back to the training for success. Um, if you sort of, if you think of, you know, during that, um, during the formative years, where a person may be in secondary school and hormones and stuff, that obviously changes the medication they need. They might have to go through a journey then of in terms of finding a new medication, and then that all leads into actually having an impact on their schooling. And if you came across somebody that was having a seizure, be it um, a known epileptic or a person that's just after having a seizure for the very first time, how do you treat a person who is having a seizure? Listen, if, if, it's, if it's someone who, who's just having a seizure for the first time and you weren't aware that they have epilepsy, uh, ring an ambulance straight away. Um, that's That's just on that aspect of it. If it is a person with epilepsy and you know they have epilepsy, um, first thing to do is actually stay calm, take a deep breath in. Um, and in the majority of cases, you don't actually have to do that much. Um, 
key is that you actually let the seizure run its course. Um, you actually want to time the seizure as well, um, because if the seizure goes over five minutes, you're an ambulance because it could potentially be dangerous for that person. But aside from that, um, you want to, like, if, if the person is in danger of, say, for example, hitting off the chair uh, that they might be near, move the chair first, restrain the person in any way. Um, if they have a shirt on, for example, um, loosen to loosen their, their airway, if you can. But generally speaking, you have to let and after the seizure run its course, um, stay with that person, reassure them, uh, because they will be quite confused and maybe disorientated after it, um, because they'll, they'll feel like they've actually just ran a marathon on that person. Um, they'll have no knowledge of, in the majority of cases, of what's just happened. So stay with them, reassure them, and talk gently to them. And that's basics, really. Um, and also, there is there is a couple of myths around and that we that we don't like bringing attention to, but we have to because there's a real problem. And that is, is number one, that you don't restrain a person during a seizure. Uh, because if you can imagine, that person's muscles are, are rigid and, you know, you'll either you'll hurt yourself. Um, and the second is that you don't put anything in a person's mouth during a seizure. That can be very, very damaging to them um, and dangerous as well. So that's, it's, that's a myth that I've got. It's, it's been there for decades that you should put something in a person's mouth during a seizure, but it's really something that needs to be forgotten. Um, it's a myth and do not put anything in a person's mouth during a seizure. I, can't, I cannot emphasize it enough. And you mentioned there about not restraining somebody who is having a seizure. And just out of curiosity, Paddy, if a person is passenger in a car and are having a seizure, it's, isn't it true that you take off their seatbelt? Yeah, it, it would definitely sound correct to me to, you know, obviously stop the car first and, um, yeah, to, to, you know, to make sure they're not restrained. Uh, any sort of restraint will be, you know, will be, it'll be, It'll be hurtful to that person with epilepsy and, you know, with their body moving and uh, jerking involuntary. Um, it, it, could be, it could be quite painful to them whenever they wake up. And Paddy, if people want to um, get involved in this training course in Sligo OIT or want more information about Epilepsy Ireland, how do they go about getting it? Yeah, it's um, yeah, it's 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 www.epilepsy.ie. Um, we're also also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all the usuals. Um, Training for Success is there. It has its own little standalone section on our website, so it's quite easy to find. Um, but yeah, like all the information there about epilepsy and our course Training for Success is on our website. Um, we'd love to hear from you. Um, if there is anyone there in that crossroads that you know we started to discuss. Uh, their their condition may have had an impact on their on their schooling or, or social development. Um, you know, training for success could be for you. Um, it could be a turning point in your life, and we'd love to hear from you. Even if you have any questions, you don't necessarily have to be have to be getting in touch saying we're one hundred percent joining the course. But we're happy to answer any questions you might have, even if it's for next year as well. Um, listen, it's someone that might might it might be might be a big turning point in your life and could help you a lot. Sorry, Paddy, is there an age limit uh, for this course, or is it for college-going students? 18 and over. Um, there's, no, there's no upper limit on it. Okay, so mature students also can apply? Yeah, yeah, no, across the board, just so that the person is capable, 
capable of independent living is, is, is really the, the main criteria on it. Um, but our, our course managers will, um, will talk you through questions that you might have. Well, Paddy McKagan, Communications Officer with Epilepsy Ireland, thank you very much for taking the call today. We are Community Radio, Kilkenny City, 88.7 FM. We all want to stay safe and protect each other from coronavirus. We do this by cleaning our hands, social distancing and covering sneezes and coughs. We can also do this by wearing a face covering. Face coverings help prevent people who don't know they have the virus from spreading it to others. They should be worn anywhere it's difficult to stay two metres apart, like shops or public transport, or when visiting anyone who's more at risk. Wear a face covering. Stay safe. Protect each other. See hse.ie for more. Alcohol Action Ireland was established in 2003 and is the national charity for alcohol-related issues. They are an independent voice for advocacy and policy change and working to reduce levels of alcohol harm in Ireland and to provide public health, safety and well-being. On the phone now, I am speaking to Eunan McKinney and he is the Head of Communications and Advocacy at Alcohol Action Ireland. So welcome to Community Radio Kilkenny City. Thanks for having me on. So, first of all, tell us a little bit about your organisation and how ye came about to be established. Okay, um, so as you said at the outset, we were established in 2003, which is 17 years ago. And essentially that came about because at, at and around the turn of the century, uh, the year 2000, 2001, Ireland's alcohol consumption peaked at a record level at 14.3 litres per capita. And I'll explain that later. But essentially our, our drinking as a population had largely gone out of control, which was essentially a symptom of essentially the Celtic Tiger and the booming economy at that time. And there was a lot of concern expressed around that time about what were we going to do as a society to try and curb our levels of alcohol consumption. And at that time, around 2001, 2002, a strategic group was established in the Department of Health to try and come up with some ideas in relation to how that might be undertaken. And one of the ideas that emerged from that was that there needed to be a group established possibly in Ireland, uh, kind of an NGO, as you said, a non-governmental organisation that would campaign and advocate for change around alcohol-related matters, and in particular to highlight the levels of alcohol harm that we were experiencing. So the genesis idea was founded around that time, and a group of individuals came together to kind of take that on and to action essentially what had been proposed and so that that organization was founded at that time in 2003 and essentially since that time it has acted as a kind of a bulwark for the the best policy the best evidence-based policy from around the world and to try and bring that um, experience and that insight into what we hoped would be controls around alcohol in Ireland Um, and essentially what the central uh, policy measures that were developed out of a, a, a subsequent strategy in 2012 was the need to establish the Public Health Alcohol Act, which includes a whole set of measures, a suite of measures, which are essentially designed to curb the demand for alcohol 
in Irish society. And um, so essentially what I call Action Ireland does is it tries to stimulate debate around the need for stronger public action around the public health dimension and also to try and advocate on behalf of a variety of people who are largely voiceless in this experience of alcohol harm. And in particular, we think about children of, uh, adult children of alcoholics who've experienced trauma throughout most of their lives and children today who are currently living in families where parental alcohol misuse is a significant source of trauma to their lives. So that plus the idea of simply trying to highlight the level of waste that is endeavoured around uh, public expenditure on a problem like alcohol, which is to, the, to a large degree resolvable. We, we, we have Ireland has a particular problem with alcohol and it costs the state a huge amount of money to deal with that problem, but essentially we can solve that problem ourselves by drinking less. And so what we try to advocate for in that respect is to bring about a set of measures which will ensure that we uh, are better informed of the risk around alcohol, but also aren't subjected to the Lavers of pressure to uh, stimulate our purchase of, uh, and consumption of alcohol. And you mentioned as well, you mentioned there about the cost to the state. Now that yes. is coming down to people who are drinking too much, maybe at weekends or binge drinking. And now yep. the, then there's an ambulance needed to be called, person needs to go into hospital. So that's taking up the vital services of the ambulance service, the hospital, Correct. the doctors, the nurses, taken away from the fact that doctors and nurses in there could be helping somebody that's seriously injured, but they're tied up helping a person that has drank themselves into that state and has got themselves into that position. What can be done as a nation to stop this or to maybe to reduce it? Well, I, I think there's a, there's, a, there's a variety of public policy measures which can be brought about to influence the action of the population to drink less. I mean, as you say, the cost to our society from the certainly the social and economic impact of the level of alcohol in which we drink is certainly north of around 3.6 billion at the moment. And as you rightly say, you know, the, the half of that cost has largely been spent on through the public health system whereby people are in our like for every for every 10 beds that exist in the public system one of them has been occupied by somebody who has an alcohol related problem um and that's where that cost but then the other costs are costs that are implicated by as you say issues around the Gardaí, issues around criminal justice uh, issues around education, issues around social protection, uh, all of those costs all add up. And then beyond the, the immediate public costs, we have issues in relation to the economy and how much money is being um, spent on absenteeism and lack of and reduced productivity because of people's inability to perform the duties that which they are being paid to do. So there's a whole variety of those measures. So. What do we need to do to try and bring about a, a reduction in the levels of alcohol consumption? Well, essentially, they, they, they gravitate around four 
key measures, and that is you have to make the price of alcohol at a point whereby it is acts as some degree of a, uh, a dampener on demand. And just to explore that for a little bit, we, you know, people normally say, when you say something like that, well, alcohol is very expensive. And alcohol is expensive in the on-trade, in the licensed premises, in pubs and restaurants and such matters. But alcohol in the off-trade, uh, in supermarkets and convenience stores and petrol stations and all these other sort of places is actually remarkably affordable. So what we need to do is we need to make the price of alcohol in the off-trade, where we purchase around 70% of the alcohol that we consume, we need to make that a little bit more dear. And the key measure there is to introduce a policy called minimum unit pricing, uh, which would ensure that the cheapest, strongest alcohol on the market, typically, you know, your bottle, your bottle of spirits that you can buy in a supermarket for 13 or 14 euros, um, those types of products would become significantly more expensive. So price is an important part of trying to reduce consumption. The promotion of alcohol also needs to be curbed. We, we need to put in place, there is a series of measures that have been designed to change the way alcohol is advertised and even last year we've moved to a situation where we introduced a measure that saw that alcohol could not be advertised on outdoor uh, transport means or within 200 metres of a school so that's a significant change that took place last November and next November this November coming we will see a significant change in our supermarkets and, and convenience stores because alcohol will no longer be available in an open way in shelving or on the shop floor. It will have to be contained within a particular area. In other words, it will have to be a, a deliberate decision by the, the purchaser or the consumer to actually have a, to go through a particular barrier before they can consume or before they can purchase alcohol. So price and promotion. And then information. The product information is an important factor as well. We need to have clear information on all alcohol products which explains the risk to the consumer. So again, part of the measures within the Public Health Alcohol Act outlines that every product in the future must have uh, information on it that says or states or informs the public of the direct link between alcohol and fatal cancers, as well as the direct link between alcohol and pregnancy and the risk to your pregnancy. So these are these are a series of some of the measures that we need to bring about. And if they were collectively and coherently um, taken, we would and can envisage a scenario whereby we could bring about a 20% reduction over a seven-year period. Um, and what we would need to do if 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 Ireland as a drinking nation, if we were all to drink within the context of what is low-risk guidelines, in other words, there are a set of guidelines from the Department of Health which say that men should only drink no more than 17 standard drinks a week and women should drink no more than 11 standard drinks a week. If we were to follow those guidelines as a population, we would currently be drinking 40% less than what we do today. So we have a long way to go here. Yeah, and another issue is the whole issue of 
underage drinking in Ireland and this the the whole idea of people getting together and having house parties and binge drinking would you maybe think that it's spurred on by the fact that you go into supermarkets and alcohol is there and you're buying 20 bottles of whatever sort of drink for 20 euro or you've got the likes of alcohol pops that are maybe five or six of them that can be bought for 10 or 12 euro do you think maybe that that is adding to the problem of underage drinking and the whole issue of house parties and having these binge drinking sessions among teenagers and young adults well, I think there's two separate points there, if, if, if you bear with me for a minute. I think at a level of underage drinking, I think the, the, the stimulus and the drivers of underage drinking are slightly different to young adults in so much that obviously children shouldn't be drinking alcohol at all. Uh, and when I say children, I mean anybody under the age of 18. Um, and we know that regrettably, a half, half of all 15-year-olds already drink in this country. And by the time they reach their teenage years, the end of their teenage years, so by, you know, as they close out the year at 19, 93% of them will be drinking. So we have a, we have a real problem with the recruitment and the enrollment of children into a drinking population. And why is that? Well, that is because we can continue to allow the alcohol producers to have access to um, activities and interests for young people. So sport is a particular obvious connection in that respect. Sport is, is sponsored by alcohol companies and we see all all the major sporting codes having a relationship with alcohol producers and that's what stimulates children into alcohol. You know, we don't, we don't have a, a cohort of 18-year-olds who on their 18th birthday just a switch goes off in their head to say... I think I'll have some alcohol. That, that, that relationship has been built with those children right throughout their childhood years. Um, and that's an insidious and pernicious uh, relationship that we need to actually do something about. So that's just on the, on the underage problem and the issue of children. Younger adults is a separate matter in so much as I agree completely. I mean, that age cohort that is 18 to 24-year-olds they are Europe's leading number one binge drinkers. Um, they drink significantly more than their European counterparts. And the principal reason for that, I would argue, is the price. The price of the alcohol is incredibly cheap. We sell alcohol in our supermarkets, in our convenience stores, for in many instances, less than the price of milk. Um, so, of course, we're going to have a situation. When we have that level of, a, if you mix the availability, the mass availability of alcohol and the incredible affordability of that alcohol, you mix those two things together, you undoubtedly get a situation whereby you have a young cohort of young adults who are particularly attracted to alcohol and drinking way in excess of what they should be. We'll go on to the next subject and that is all around COVID-19 and it's happening at the moment and it's uh, there is a lot of restrictions going on and yes, the country is opening up and it is opening up slowly 
but there is still a, a huge amount of restrictions. Has this caused people to drink more because people are out of work because of COVID-19? They're at home more. They're sitting around. Maybe they're bored. They've nothing to do. Has alcohol been a contributor to the, the drinking habits of people around COVID-19? Well, I think, what, I mean, what we have seen... The evidence in relation to the period of COVID-19 is that obviously the licensed premises, as in public houses and restaurants and such matters, nightclubs, they closed in late March or thereabouts. And what we had, what we saw immediately was that that market was closed off to people who consume alcohol. But what has happened is that largely the activity that was, the drinking that was taking place on those licensed premises essentially has transferred into the home. And we've seen that by virtue of the data that indicates that during the, the most restricted period of the lockdown, we knew that uh, off-trade off sales of alcohol had peaked at 90% plus what they would normally have been. Um, so what we've largely done is we've taken the alcohol that has been consumed into pubs, we've taken that activity into our homes. Now, the difficulty with that, of course, is that any level of alcohol in homes is largely consumed in an unregulated, free-flowing way. Um, and from, a, from the point of view of, of what we know, what we would do in our normal line of advocacy work for, you know, to, to, to highlight the, the needs of what are 200,000 children who, on a daily basis, have to live with parental alcohol misuse in their homes... Uh, we can only but imagine that their lives have been immeasurably um, diminished over that period of time. As to why people are consuming that alcohol, I suppose it is reasonable to suggest that a lot of people, um, and we've seen that in some data that the CSO, the Central Statistics Office, did back in, in June, you know, it, it, is, it is true to say that certainly the scenario whereby certainly people who had young families or, or had children and were all at home, they certainly did increase their consumption of alcohol. And I can only assume that that, that can only be largely put down to increased levels of anxiety and stress. But of course, the point we made at that time and throughout the period is that people need to understand that alcohol is a depressant. Um, you know, alcohol is a psychoactive drug and... In, when you consume alcohol, it leads it, it leads to a, a, an increase in your anxiety and an increase in your levels of depression. So it, it is it is not a, it is not a, a remedy in which people should seek solace in. And of course, regrettably, you know, throughout the period, we probably have seen a number of people who may have adopted, uh, you know, temporary. Uh, te temporary lifestyles, but you know those those lifestyles can become permanent, um, and the, and that's the risk we face now is that the the real trauma that might emerge in relation to to um, our our coping mechanisms around uh, COVID nineteen may actually prove to be much greater um, because I think the people 
people's mental health will will undoubtedly have suffered because of the level of alcohol they may have consumed. Yeah, and that brings me on to um, my next question about the whole aspect of people's mental health and well-being when it comes to alcohol and drinking too much. What can people do to keep their mental health and their well-being in tip-top condition, especially in the lockdown, but also for going forward in their lives, not just with the lockdown, but in everyday life? Well, there's a whole series of things that people... I mean, we, we work very closely with Mental Health Ireland, um, who are our, our partners in the in this area. And we set out, and people can see this, uh, it's available on our website, uh, alcoholireland.ie. Um, you'll see that there's a series of actions that people can do to essentially keep their mental health in, 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 a, in a fairly stable and steady context. And that, you know, essentially comes around to ensuring that you don't develop um, uh, bad habits, that you do exercise regularly, that you do try to get your regular amount of sleep, that you do try to ensure that you do something that will break the monotony for you, as, as you outlined earlier. And there, you know, these are these are fairly simple stuff. But of course, the the bottom line in in much of it is that you don't resort to alcohol because um, the thing I'd like people to really understand is, of course, that just the corrosive impact that alcohol will have on their mental health. It will it will only increase anxiety and it will only deepen depression. Alcohol as well has been a contributory f- a factor with suicide here in Ireland. What exactly can be done to alleviate this problem? And this is a serious, serious problem. And especially in the male population between the ages of 15 and 24. What is causing this? Or is there a specific cause to people being so depressed that think there's no way out and this is the answer? Yeah, well, I suppose I, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a psychologist or, 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 or a psychiatrist, so I, I, I couldn't really professionally comment necessarily on some of the the issues around uh, suicidality. But we do know that sadly, alcohol does act as a as a gateway to what 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 can be very poor decision making, and sometimes. You know, we, we certainly see it in, in a lot of young men and young men who complete suicide. Um, we see alcohol has been a contributing factor uh, by virtue of the fact that, you know, at the time when sadly they took their lives, they were uh, in a state of, of intoxication. Um, our colleague, Dr. Bobby Smith, speaks very elegantly about this. Uh, in fact, on our most recent, and your listeners might wish to um, engage with this is we've we just launched a new podcast series uh, called The Alcohol File and Dr. Bobby Smith who's a child and adolescent psychiatrist uh, speaks at length on that podcast about these issues um, um, and it's a, it is a complex but a deeply, deeply um, you know, tragic uh, type of, of area to, to, to debate and you know, in, in some of our in, in, in our in our advocacy work Back in 2017, when we were when we were at the height of a battle to try and bring about the Public Health Alcohol Act, which did eventually get enacted in 2018, we had a very powerful spokesperson, a man called John Higgins, um, whose son sadly took his life. 
uh, and John spoke again. People will, you know, you'll find this on YouTube, uh, where we have what's called David's story, um, and his father John talks remarkably poignantly about just the circumstances around David's death and how alcohol played such a central role in his death. So uh, I'd ask your listeners maybe to have a, uh, have a listen and have a view of, of those two particular items. And also with women in Ireland, the women of Ireland as well have been coming more and more depending on alcohol. And this is also becoming a problem. Compared to generations of females years ago, there wouldn't have been so much females drinking alcohol. Whereas now in the 21st century, it's coming more or less the norm in everyday life. What are the increased health risks when it comes to alcohol and females? Well, just a couple of things on that. I mean, it's important to remember that men still outweigh, you know, 60, 60, over 60% of the alcohol consumed is largely consumed by men. 30 something, 35% of it is largely consumed by women. So men completely outweigh women's consumption of alcohol by two to one in general. Uh, the reason that women are drinking more today than they ever did before is because the alcohol producers are marketing alcohol to women more more vociferously um, and that's because of course it's, it's, it's largely a virgin market for them so that's a couple of things just to say about that point I mean the point that, that the risk for women obviously with um, the most pronounced risk for women in relation to <coughs> um, alcohol is is the, the connection between alcohol and breast cancer and in, in Ireland in particular um, we are an outlier in the European Union because in, in Ireland, one in eight breast cancers are related, directly related to alcohol consumption. Uh, whereas in, in, on a European scale, it's one to ten. So we're, you know, we're a significant outlier in that respect. And again, the HSE has done some work on this in recent years to highlight uh, the, the risk between alcohol and breast cancer. Um, but again, it's not not particularly well understood, uh, especially by uh, a female cohort who largely consume quite a lot of the uh, the wine uh, and spirits that perhaps are, are are on the market. As you know, women can become pregnant, and while pregnant, and if they are consuming alcohol, that can have detrimental effects on. The woman who is pregnant, but also on the developing fetus, and it can go on that when the child is born, the child can have abnormalities which are related to alcohol. Can you give the listeners um, a little bit of a rundown of what are the risks when it comes to alcohol and pregnancy, and then the risks to the baby when the baby is born afterwards? Okay, well, I think it. it I think it's generally understood that you certainly, you know, research would indicate that certainly over 70% of, of women understand the risk between alcohol and pregnancy. And generally speaking, the vast majority of people, when they fall pregnant or become pregnant, uh, would, 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 would uh, cease consumption of alcohol. But obviously, of course, a lot of people become pregnant, you know, unexpectedly, shall we say. Um, so uh, it's important to say to people that, of course, you know, there sometimes 
you know, the two don't always, you know, we don't live in a perfect world where these matters are completely clear and black and white. And unfortunately, as I say, some people don't realize that they're pregnant and maybe perhaps continue to drink. And that's, that's, that, that can be, that can be problematic. Um, the, the issue in relation to heavy consumption of alcohol or continued, um, persistence with alcohol during pregnancy and Ireland is one of the top five countries in the world where women continue to consume alcohol in their pregnancy which is a separate matter to what I was saying earlier but in the, in, the, in that context the, the chances are that they increase the possibility that the child will suffer from fetal alcohol um, spectrum disorders or worse some degree of fetal alcohol syndrome um, and in in the context of fetal alcohol uh, spectrum disorders, the general outcomes tend to be, you know, children with some degree of hyperten- hyperactivity, some degree of attention deficit issues. Um, whereas in the in the context of fetal alcohol uh, syndrome, they're much more profound. They're much more physical. Uh, lack of brain development, physical attributes, etc., um, and these are, you know, much more, much more significant and much more serious. But there are certainly in Ireland on an annual basis. Uh, our colleague, Dr. Mary O'Mahony, who's based in Cork, certainly has done some very groundbreaking research on this matter, and she she um, has estimated that there are over six hundred births a year where the child involved would have some impact on fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. Um, so it's, it, is a, it is a very real and very uh, significant area of, of threat and risk in relation to the consumption of alcohol. Finally, what help is available for people in Ireland when it, beco- when it comes to alcohol and alcohol misuse? What helplines and support services are available? Well, that's a very good question. Um, in so much as that, you know, there's a, there, there's a clear, regrettably, a bit like a lot of things in the public health system, you know, there is a clear demand. Demand far outweighs the availability of services. Um, and um, at the level of alcohol dependency, um, there certainly would be significant deficits in relation to the services that are required. We know that there are around... You know, somewhere around um, 20,000 people in Ireland potentially looking for help in relation to alcohol dependency issues. Yet there's only about 3,500 that would receive uh, treatment on on an immediate basis. So there's a real gap in relation to how people actually access services. The HSE have a very good, excellent website called askaboutalcohol.ie and in it you can drill down and to find the the services in your local area in relation to alcohol or substance misuse and addiction. So there's there are there are a very good number of services available listed for each county on the website uh, where people can really get a close connection to what's available in their local community. On on a helpline basis, there is the HSE helpline, the Alcohol and Drugs helpline, which is uh, 1-800 number. It's 1-800-459-459. And you can ring that number. And again, it has a very, it has a limited number of people 
available to um, provide the service. So if you don't get through or if you don't get an answer, you'll, you'll be invited to leave a, a message and they will contact you or ring you back. Um, so they're the two particular ones that I'd want to draw people's attention to from a service point of view. The Ask About Alcohol at askaboutalcohol.ie, which is a HSE-run service, and the helpline, which is run by the HSE as well, at one 800 459 459 Eunan McKenney, Head of Communication and Advocacy at Alcohol Action Ireland. Thank you very much for taking the call today on Community Radio Kilkenny City. We are Community Radio Kilkenny City 88.7 FM. Yes, and you are tuned to Kilkenny today uh, with me and Nolan. Before the ad break there, I aired and I was speaking to uh, Ewan McKenney and he's the Head of Communication and Advocacy at Alcohol Action Ireland. And if you have been affected by the topics or issues in that interview, you can contact alcoholanonymous.ie. That's www.alcoholicanonymous.ie or you can contact www alcoholactionireland.ie and they have lots of information and helpful tips and um, useful information there if you are a family member or someone you know has been affected by alcohol or alcohol misuse and uh, also as well earlier on in the programme I aired an interview with Paddy McGagan and he is the uh, communications officer with Epilepsy Ireland and if you want to get in contact with them uh, in relation to a training for success course that is being held in WIT, you can go on to www.epilepsy.ie. That's www.epilepsy.ie. And that is all I have time for on the show today. Uh, thank you very much to everyone who was tuned in and listening and to the contributors, Paddy McGagan from Epilepsy Ireland and Ewan McKenney from Alcoholic um, Action Ireland. Um, Stay tuned for more great programmes coming up after me. We are Community Radio, Kilkenny City, 88.7 FM.